Welcome back to Power Hour. I'm Nicole Auerbach, National College football writer. Joined this week by my friend and colleague, Andy Bitter. He covers Virginia Tech. He's the host of our Atlantic and Coastal podcast. And this is our Tuesday National College football podcast. We talk about whatever we want in the sport of college football in an hour or less. And eventually one of these days we will actually have a true power hour and record it and see what happens. But not today. Today we are talking over coffee. We're talking about Bruce Arians' career and his Virginia Tech roots. And Andy, I am super thrilled that you are joining me because I loved this story. I thought it was such a great story. And I really would love to know, first of all, how long it took to put together? Was this something you know you were gonna do when the Bucks were in the postseason, and then they happened to make the Super Bowl? Like, how, how does the story about someone's coaching roots that covers so much ground take? Like, how did it start? Uh, well, they won the NFC Championship game, and I was thinking, trying to think of story ideas. And I, I had written, uh, well, I had written a Hokies book a couple years ago. Yeah, you know, hundred things that every Hokies fan should know and do before they die. Quick plug there for the book, but. Uh, Bruce Arians was one of the chapters that I had in that. It was sort of later on in the book, and you know he was here a long time ago, and it was brief, but obviously that was in the back of my mind that he had played here. So I'd sort of written his story in a short form like that before, and I figured it'd be a nice thing to revisit because uh, you see Bruce Arians at some of these press conferences, and he's got like a Virginia Tech sweatshirt on or something like that. It's got the logo like prominent, and you go... Man, he, he hasn't really forgotten where he came from with this stuff. He's he's a, a big fan of Virginia Tech. Um, you know, went to a basketball game where Buzz Williams was coaching uh, the Hokies against uh, Georgia Tech in Atlanta, which wasn't too far from his lake house a couple years ago. Apparently, got a bunch of swag from that and like stayed and talked with the team and had dinner with Buzz and all that stuff. So he really sticks true to Virginia Tech, and that comes out. Uh, every now and then and uh, you know I saw that with him at the press conferences wearing that gear Uh, I saw him win and I go you know that'd be a good story to tell I haven't told that story Uh, I think in my previous stop another writer had done that there and not me but here I haven't done that and you know it's the time of year where you're kind of fishing for stories I mean there's nothing going on you know last week was signing day and Virginia Tech didn't sign anybody else because they took care of all their signing you know the real signing days in December now so uh, it's that time of year where you just need to to find stories, and I thought this would be an interesting way to go. Obviously, free swag was part of this. I, I feel like that, oh, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, it's your alma mater, yeah, you played there, but really, it's free swag that that uh, that that seals the deal. I, I think it's I think it's really interesting when you see coaches and and Bruce Arians is is sixty eight, as we were told many times, um, reaching his first Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl. Um, it was part of what made his trajectory and the Bucks winning a Super Bowl really interesting and really compelling. There was like 10 different, very interesting, compelling storylines about this team. Um, and it's interesting when you read stories like this about how coaches start their careers and kind of like all these different forks in the road. Cause I feel like nowadays I'm not sure that, you know, that people a get into jobs like this, kind of like haphazardly almost, um, or like one guy vouching that, that definitely happens. But now, 
you know, there's so much money in coaching. Maybe you're getting in for, into it for different reasons or, um, you know, maybe you, you aren't looking at Like, I know there was that fork in the road about like a teaching job versus, you know, coming back to Virginia Tech. Um, but I, I love those stories about kind of like that era of getting into coaching where it's really about loving football. It's really about teaching. It's about the X's and O's. Um, and you don't know at that point when you're talking about these early stages of someone's career like this that they're going to make millions of dollars and be very, very, very famous as an NFL head coach. So I love those beginnings where it's just kind of like a fork in the road and they didn't get accepted to be you know, a teacher at some school. Yeah, it's interesting. I think Bruce was always destined to be a teacher and a coach somewhere. Uh, you know, that's sort of the influential figures in his life uh, up to and including when he was at Virginia Tech. So I think that was in, in his future some way. Uh, it could have just possibly been at the high school level, <laughs> you know, or starting at the middle school level and going up to high school or something like that. It just happened to work out that he got the job at Virginia Tech. It's, it's interesting. He worked at Virginia Tech for four years, uh, three as a GA, I believe. Or I take that back. It was three years, two as a GA, one as the running backs coach. And his roommate, James Barber, was also there as a GA. And they all get fired on Jimmy, Sta- Jimmy Sharp's staff after the 1977 season and they're going to the coaches convention and, and uh, James Barber is talking with Bruce. He's like, are you going to keep doing this? Like, are you going to keep doing this job where you get fired every three years and you know, you pick up your family and you move around and, and Barber decided at that point that it wasn't for him. He didn't want to keep doing that. And Bruce obviously did keep going. Uh, and it wasn't like a, a straight line of success. I mean, he had 14 different stops in his career before he gets to this Super Bowl moment uh, with Tampa Bay. He had so many uh, assistant coach jobs in the NFL and uh, never really got that call to be a head coach until it was later in his career with the Arizona Cardinals. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think, you know, I ask people all the time, like, did you ever imagine when he was getting started that this is what his career would become? They're like, no, oh, hell no. There's no, no <laughs> chance that it would have been like that. But, I mean, you see some of the seedlings of why he's so successful and uh, sort of the knowledge that he, he sopped up from all the, the coaches that he, he worked under and, and the, the people that he was exposed to that helped him further along in his career. Yeah, I, I wanted to, to ask about that because I feel like, and maybe a lot of this is because when we do stories like this about people who you know, have gone on or become head coaches somewhere and become incredibly successful in their careers, I mean, clearly, like, there's something special about them. So you hear all these stories about, you know, just their IQ, their football knowledge, how naturally stuff comes to them. But what was different about the way that people were talking about Bruce Arians early, like, when he was a player, when he was GA? I mean, it was clear that he was involved in some very high-level football conversations about how things work and how he saw the game. And I'm wondering, like, how unique that ultimately is. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I know he, he sort of got a graduate level work right away when he started, where he was uh, running the scout team a little bit uh, on games. And Charlie Pell, the defensive coordinator for Virginia Tech at the time, would sort of pepper him with questions. Like I, I think in his book, Bruce is saying, "Well, I was getting ready to go home for the night," and Charlie Pell's like, "Sit down. You're not going anywhere for the next four hours." And they'd sit there and they'd go over game plans, and he'd, he'd tell him like that. So I don't know how common that is. I mean, I have to imagine. Uh, you know, a lot of places do that. But then there's some places where, you know, you're just starting out and maybe they don't give you quite that many responsibilities. 
so I think one of the things that, uh, you know, I talked with Jimmy Sharp for this story, he said that we, we just didn't have him in the back room. Like, he was an active guy out there, and he was an active participant in this. And he was sort of in a unique situation, too, because, you know, he had run the wishbone as a senior. So he sort of knew that offense, and he knew how to run it. He had not done it before, so that was a new thing, and it's kind of strange to see a guy like him be the wishbone quarterback. But, uh, you know, when he was a coach that first year, he had a, a pretty good knowledge of, of the wishbone and uh, the passing concepts that they would do out of that wishbone. So I think uh, they put a little bit more on his shoulders right away in terms of teaching or, or getting uh, some of these players along. Phil Rogers was the guy who played quarterback that first year. They had moved him from running back. And Bruce was in charge of a lot of uh, getting him to learn how to play quarterback because he had done it the previous year. So uh, maybe those circumstances uh, were different than other coaches getting their starts and maybe he had a little bit more responsibilities. I'm not sure either, <laughs> but it, it feels like maybe that's a little bit more than you would get for an entry-level job. Yeah, I, th- I think even now it's, it's, it's definitely more than you would get. There were, there were a couple of parts of the story that I loved because, you know, they, they certainly perfectly fit into a lot of just the overall storylines and the things that, you know, Bruce gets a lot of credit for right now. And one was about the diversity on his staff, having black coordinators, having women on his staff. Um, and I, I loved hearing about the roots of all of that. And, you know, obviously it goes back to, you know, growing up in, um, you know, in, in areas around people that don't look like you, but also... I was I didn't know that he was part of basically history of Virginia Tech. Yeah, it's it's you know, it doesn't feel like it's that long ago, but man it was. Uh you know, the early seventies there was still Virginia Tech was desegregating as a school. I mean it hadn't been that long since uh black students were admitted there. There still weren't a lot. Uh, Jerry Gaines, I believe, was the first uh scholarship athlete in track and field, and that was in nineteen sixty eight. So Arians comes along in 1970. It's not like this has been this long-established uh, culture of, of uh, mixing races at the yeah. school. And, yeah, Virginia Tech's still pretty Southern compared to this stuff, although they had the football team had a pretty good mix of guys from the northern states and, and Pennsylvania and New Jersey, New York, stuff like that. But he gets down there. And, uh, you know, the coach handpicks him to be the first uh, white player on the team to have a black roommate, James Barber, uh, father of Tiki Barber and Rondé Barber. A little interesting uh, factoid there. But, uh, you know, Bruce thought nothing of it because he's like, I grew up in York, Pennsylvania, where it's this multiracial neighborhood. And he played on black uh, football teams where he was one of the only white players there. And he was in neighborhoods where he had black friends. And like, it's just, it didn't phase him. Whereas a lot of people at Virginia Tech at the time, it was something strange and something new. So uh, he goes down there. And I think the fact that, uh, you know, he didn't think it was that big of a deal. That was very meaningful when I talked to James Barber about that because he said, you know, we just go to dinner and go to frat houses, and Bruce is right there with him the whole time, and it was no big deal. And now you look at it now, and Bruce Arians has a, a coaching staff with three black coordinators, which is, I think, the only team in the NFL that's like that. Uh, two female assistant coaches on the staff as well, the only uh, team in the NFL, I believe, that has two female coaches like that. And he doesn't think anything of it. I I was listening to his press conference before the Super Bowl, and they're like, "Well, you know, did you? It's not. He's like, it's not like this was by design. These are just the best coaches I know." And he, he likes that fact that you're getting different voices bringing stuff in. I'm paraphrasing the quote here, but it's something like, "If you have different voices coming in and different input like that, you get better output when you have different people telling you the kind of stuff that you're telling." So. Um, really, I think he's he's probably taking advantage of a market inefficiency 
in the NFL where there's all these uh, great coaches out there that have not been given a chance. And, you know, part of that goes back to his, you know, the upbringing and, and being used to being around people of different races uh, helps that too. But, you know, for a long time, he did not get his opportunity as a head coach. I mean, he was a Super Bowl winning coordinator with the Steelers and he never got a call and <laughs> his phone would not be ringing. So I think he looks at that and, uh, you know, I, he kind of was wondering the, during the press conference why nobody was hiring his coordinators away when they've had so much success. He's, he's like, I think all of them should be head coaches with how well they've done. But, uh, you know, it's working out pretty well for Tampa Bay to, to have these coaches on staff and how well they're doing. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting because I think some of the conversation about that um, just kind of wanted to pat him on the back a little bit. And he didn't want that. And I, I loved that quote that, that you included in the story that you just paraphrased. Um, because I, I do think there is a, a market inefficiency if you are just kind of, you know, not including an entire potential candidate pool. Um, and so I, one thing I like was, yes, that he's saying this wasn't by design. These are just the best coaches. Um, and, you know, you saw a lot of clips of, you know, just players interacting with the female coaches the same way they would with anyone else. Anyone who can help you get better, people want to learn from, especially pro athletes. And so I thought that was really cool. And then the coordinator piece, again, I don't know if it's always explained well, but I think like as, you know, it, even in colleges, we, t- we end up talking about this a lot, especially in recent years, is a lot of places won't hire someone without a coordinator title. Like they could be in, in a rising star, phenomenal coach, but that coordinator title matters quite a bit. And so that's why it matters when you're talking about opportunities. It's not just getting on a staff, being a position coach. It's about getting that type of responsibility, that label, because that is, for a lot of people, that is something that they are going to require when they look at someone for a job. And I think that's what's really cool about what he's doing with this staff is it's not entry-level jobs. It's not just to fill quotas. Like, these are significant responsibility jobs and positioning coaches and then talking them up for head coaching opportunities. Like that's all you really want as a coach who's trying to rise and wants to be a head coach someday. Yeah, I I think that's you've outlined the path on how these guys get to be head coaches is you become a coordinator and then that kind of gets you in the pipeline for doing stuff. And I think for the longest time, you know, a lot of black coaches would get hired, and you certainly see this in college too. They're like, oh, you're a running backs coach, yep. and you're considered a recruiter or something like that, and people kind of typecast you in a certain role like that. But it's it's obvious that everybody is capable of being coordinators like this, and they're doing very well like this. I thought it was funny. I, I saw the the post game that uh, Byron Leftwich stepped to the podium, and I think somebody confused him with Todd Bowles off the first one. And I, I saw Bamani Jones. He's like, kudos to Bruce Arians for having a coaching staff diverse enough that somebody could make that mistake. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, how often yeah. would, would you even be able to make that mistake? So, uh, you know. My question on that, that is, how, how do you do that in a Zoom world? Everyone's names are on the little screen in front I, of you. Did they announce the name beforehand? <laughs> I don't know. If they announced the name. Like, sometimes, <laughs> I'll be honest, like, there are players at Virginia Tech that I've never talked to, of all races, not, not just yeah. black and you players. Just, but you pop in. Like, they're like a freshman or sophomore coming in. We've never spoken to them. And we're like, everybody in the room is like, who is this guy? Like, I hope they <laughs> announce who this person is. So I know who I'm asking the question is. Sometimes I have an idea, but you don't want to make that mistake. Uh, certainly, I wouldn't want to make that mistake after the Super Bowl. That's sort of a visible mistake at that point. That, very visible. And especially uh, with, with people who are on the screen a lot and, and who you who you do know. But yeah, I do think that is, um, you know, a, a, a 
silver lining way to look at it. But it, it was really cool to see that and to see success with that. I, I think that career paths, like you mentioned, 14 stops, moving around all the time. Like, this is a coach's coach. Like, these are people who love the game and, and again, get into it when it wasn't – you weren't making money and, and, and you go through these – careers one other aspect that I thought you really saw based on his upbringing and the beginnings of his football life that that really shows I think again about you know like taking on Antonio Brown this year which I had a lot of problems with like I still don't think anyone should have taken him um but you you and Tom Brady is a better example of this and someone other people thought was done and and about to be washed up but second chances. And I, I, I'm curious if you could just walk through that part of Bruce's story before he even got to Virginia Tech that kind of instilled something in him willing to look at those guys who, who need those second chances, which obviously was also a storyline of the Super Bowl. Yeah, when he was a senior in high school, uh, he was at York Catholic High, and he had got kicked out as a senior after he got caught drinking beer with some of his football teammates. Uh as you can imagine, I think a lot of schools stopped recruiting him based on that. Uh, the Virginia Tech coach at the time who was recruiting him, John Devlin, uh, told the staff at Virginia Tech that he was switching schools to take a more advanced math class, which, you know, Bruce in his book is like, me taking an advanced math class, like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> like, who bought that uh, that lie there? But it worked. Uh, you know, uh, they they convinced them to keep recruiting him. He went to a different high school and, and finished up there and got to Virginia Tech. And he sort of remembered that moment. He remembered the, like, oh, I, I could have had everything derailed right there for a stupid mistake uh, at a young point in my life. And this coach stood up for me and the school stood up for me. And, uh, you know, he repaid that debt over how he behaved uh, the next couple of years. So I think that sticks with him. Uh, obviously, when you talk about somebody like Antonio Brown, that's a lot more serious than uh, you know drinking some beers when you're 17 or whatever it was. Uh, so there's there's larger things that you have to look at like that. But he is a guy that I, I think can be forgiving and can look into somebody and you know take the measure of them and see if they're truly uh, sorry for what they did and if they want to make a, a tone a tone for that. So uh, you know I I think that early life lesson has stuck with him for the rest of his career. And, and that's probably why he gives some of these guys a second chance or looks at somebody who maybe didn't succeed right away and, and, and gives them another opportunity. I also loved the, what if of what if he'd gotten the job instead of Frank Beamer? I mean, I, it's, it's, it's funny to even think about Virginia tech without the Beamers. Right. And, and about what that, what he did for that program. How close was it? I'm not sure how close it was. It sounds like Bobby Ross was like the first, the, the number one target that they had, and he was not interested. And he suggested Frank Beamer to Dutch Boffman, who was the, uh, the the AD at the time. But Bruce interviewed. So I think at that point, once Bobby Ross was out of the picture, that's where Bruce is maybe sort of the number two pick in there. Uh, it's always tough to tell. I mean, you're, you're talking about recollections from... Uh, I mean, 35 years ago, <laughs> trying to figure out who was number one in this choice and who was number two. Uh, but it sounds like he interviewed it. And it sounds like, you know, you asked Bruce, he said he thought he had it. So uh, it, it, certainly something happened where, uh, uh, you know, the things kind of got sideways there and they ended up going a different direction. But uh, yeah, as Mike Burnup said in my story, it worked out pretty good for both parties. Yes. <laughs> Bruce went out of the career he had and <laughs> Frank became a legend at Virginia Tech. So it was like in this lead up to the Super Bowl and 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 then the Bucks winning um what like 
what is the relation? We've, we've talked a lot about, you know, him still wearing gear and trying to go to games. You mentioned the story, um, you know, stopping by practices with Justin Fuente era. Um, what about fans? Like, were fans Bucks fans? You know, I, I saw a lot of people in my stories comments that say I didn't really have a rooting interest in this, and I probably wasn't going to root for Tampa Bay because of Tom Brady. I, they just wanted to root against <laughs> him. But they're like, after reading this, I'm going to root for Bruce Arians. And, you know, the the Twitter account at Virginia Tech has played up the the connection with those uh, the him and the school. And you know, he's been here and he's visited Justin Fuente and spoken to the team. His house on uh, Lake Oconee, I think that's how you pronounce it, in Georgia. He's like five minutes from Frank Beamer's lake house. It's the it's the lake that has like every football coach in America has a house <laughs> on this lake. And apparently Bruce and Frank are like five minutes apart and you go there and he's got Virginia tech gear all over the place and stuff. So uh, it's not like he hides his Virginia tech connection. It's just sometimes it's, it's hard to remember that somebody who was here 40 years ago uh, is, is sort of that connection to the school. But uh, yeah, I think a lot of Hokies fans, or at least I've seen in my Twitter account when I've tried to play up this story recently, they're like, oh, I'm a Bruce Arians, Bruce Arians fan. I'm rooting for the Bucks all of a sudden. And that's enough to overcome the uh, the hate of, they have for Tom Brady. Well, you know, again, as, as someone who went to Michigan, so very familiar with a school, very leaning into a narrative about being associated with someone in the Super Bowl. They have a lot of practice with that. Um, but also at the same time, like my dad and brother um, have been diehard Jets fans my entire life and they have Jets season tickets and they part of that is to hate Tom Brady. That's like part of their requirement when you buy them. Um, it was a very interesting Super Bowl in terms of like impartial, like who you root for if you have no, you know, no skin in the game. And so I, I felt like this story was was a really good look at someone that like I didn't know most of this and again and again you know the comments i think spoke to this too that maybe even virginia tech fans didn't know a lot of this and when we what i like about these types of stories is especially when people have been in the spotlight for a long time sometimes you think you know everything about them but as we've discussed like there, there's all these like kind of little moments in someone's life early that even potentially explain things that they do later on just because it becomes part of them and and i think that that's really interesting especially when someone is achieving the greatest professional achievement of their careers is to to look back and think about this stuff. So I wanted to have you on because I just thought the story was excellent. I thought that it was really well written. But I also just think that it's really interesting to see where people come from and, and to see those things that become defining traits in them later on. Yeah, it, it, these are fun stories to write. And, uh, you know, I called out Jimmy Sharp. He was excellent. He's 81 years old now. And Jimmy Sharp is an appropriate name for him because he is sharp still. Like, he's got uh, a razor-sharp memory on some of the stuff. And I think he really enjoyed reminiscing and talking about Bruce. And, uh, you know, he, it was the lead to my story, but he sort of outlined that first meeting he had where he's talking to all the fifth-year guys if they could come back. He had just been hired by Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, do all these fifth-year guys want to come back? And Bruce comes in, and he's just in rough shape. He's got long hair and, like, this big, bushy mustache, and he's he's walking with a cane. He had sprained, <laughs> his, he had sprained his knee or his ankle uh, playing pickup basketball. So, like, this guy walks in, and he's like, yeah, I think I'd like to come back and try out to be your quarterback. And Jimmy Sharp is like, who in the heck is this guy? So, I mean, from those, like – I mean, it's, it's weird to think from those humble beginnings, this is where he got in his career to being, uh, you know, on top of the football world and being a Super Bowl champion. But 
Uh, it just kind of shows you that's what you have to do. It's not like people just hit it. They're superstars at, at age you know, 22 or whatever it was. It takes a while to get to that spot. And for a guy that's had four and a half decades as a head coach, I think everybody likes to see that and likes to see this final result. He's an easy guy to cheer for. He's a player's coach. He loves to take chances. Uh, he's a snazzy dresser. I mean, you always see him with that kangle on backwards, and uh, it's just—he's an interesting guy to cover. And I, I think it's uh, fun to see him win like this. Um, also, another again—if you haven't read the story, go find it. Um, but the photos are incredible as well. Oh, yeah, the hair are- is so seventies. The mustache—it is amazing. Yeah, he's got the big bushy mustache in one. He's got the wild hair in the others. He was on the cover. that, that They sent one of the covers the Virginia Tech-William & Mary game from 1973, it looks like. And he's there with his wife. He got married as a freshman. Uh, or Either as a freshman or right after his freshman year. Uh, and his wife still today, Chris. Uh, and they're like posed next to a tree. And he's got this like tight. <laughs> like semi turtleneck short sleeve orange shirt and these plaid bell bottom pants. Like, I mean, it is total 70s picture. It is just perfection. Uh, and then you look at him now and he's like, he's got the, the, the black uh, bold glasses and bald head and got the kangle. And it's just like, this guy's got some style. He's had style all the way back to the 70s. <laughs> Not everyone's style, but he, he had a very particular, very particular style. Um, well, again, if you haven't read um, Andy's story on Bruce Arians' beginnings at Virginia Tech, I highly recommend it on, on The Athletic. Um, but, Andy, before you go, um, you are the host of Atlantic and Coastal. That is our podcast dedicated to ACC football and now men's basketball. So um, it is February as we're recording this. There's a lot of basketball to be played. So are you getting into basketball? A little bit. As much as I can. I'm I, like, I haven't covered basketball full time in 10 years since I've been at Auburn, and I haven't covered ACC basketball full time since 2007, 2008, I think was the last ACC tournament I had gone to. So it's been a minute since I've done that. Now, you, you know, you kind of get out of it and you forget about it a little bit, and you're not at games. So you're not uh, covering as much stuff. And even when I went to one game this year, uh, Doug Dowdy at the Roanoke Times, it was his farewell after you know 47 years in the business. Uh, but I went there and like, you're not in the same spot as you used to be back in the day. You're up a little bit higher. So it's not quite the same. It's, it's tough to get back into it, but uh, I'm picking up a little bit of it. Maybe not as much as my co-host, Brendan Marks. He really carries the podcast. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm like a good uh, point guard that can't shoot. I just like to dish it out. And I set up Brendan. We had Matthew Gutierrez on. He was excellent as a guest as well. But I'm picking it up again. I'm getting back into it a little bit. It, it'll be interesting. Like, it'd be nice to get back into it and just have like a normal March Madness where you have like a regular ACC tournament. You have the, you know, I love the NCAA tournament where it's spread out around the country and the crowds that get into it. And obviously this year, everything's going to be condensed in Indianapolis and that surrounding area. And I can't imagine there will be crowds there. And that's sort of the fun part about the tournament is, uh, you know, uh, a 14 seed is up on a three in the second half and the entire arena turns against the number three yep. seed. Like, I love yep. that part of basketball, but you're not going to get that this year. So. Uh, I'm getting into it as much as I can, but I feel like it's still sort of muted just based on the circumstances of the season. Yeah, I like how you, you go to your first game in 10 years and expect like, you know, like courtside seats. Andy, I, I do. I do appreciate that. 
It's ridiculous. <laughs> I did a couple years ago. I did follow Radford as they made it into the tournament. Uh, so I went to Dayton first, and that was actually a really fun experience. Going it to is. I, I, first like, four is great. Like I sort of poo pooed the first four for a while, but I went there and I'm like, man, they put on a really good venue. It's a great venue for uh, uh, the first four uh, games like that. And then went on to Pittsburgh and watched Villanova just beat the snot out of Radford. And uh, at that point, I was immediately regretting not picking Villanova to win the tournament, which they did. So, uh, you know, I, I can pick up a few things when I'm there in person, but I was sitting courtside for that. All right. Well, I think I think you should just probably rely on Brendan to help you with your bracket this year, because um, all the teams that you're used to thinking are good are not good. So, yeah. What is it like the top <laughs> the 13 winningest teams in NCAA history are not in the poll right now? Yeah. Something like um, that. And honestly, that is one of the major stories in the ACC. And Brendan, you know, covers it better than anyone. Duke and Carolina, what's going on with them? So it, it is an interesting year. And, um, you know, it'd be really something if, like you said, in a pandemic year without fans in Indianapolis, if it's Gonzaga Baylor, who appear to be the best teams in the country, head and shoulders above everyone else, um, it would just kind of be fitting in a year that, like, the Blue Bloods, like the traditional ones, like Gonzaga is becoming that, but... It'd be an interesting year. So I, I'm excited to listen to the show as it gets into basketball a little bit more. We'll do that same on Power Hour. We're going to start transitioning to some basketball topics, too, because, um, you know, it's it's that time of year. And we miss it. It's been two years since we haven't had a March Madness. And I think that was really one of the first things when sports shut down that we really realized what we lost and what we didn't have when we missed it. Yeah, it was that in the Masters for me yeah because like the masters in april is like that that's i enjoy that weekend so much and like sunday sunday at the masters i sit there and don't even move from my couch and just watch like 10 hours of coverage whatever they put on tv but the basketball one uh you know that first weekend uh, when they do the the thursday friday games that's like the best weekend of the year it's just constant basketball on you can flip it there's usually a game that's pretty good that's going on that you can flip it over to uh, as long as you get true TV or whatever those strange channels are that they put that stuff on. But, uh, yeah, that'll be nice to have that back this year in whatever form it's going to be. Absolutely. So lots of homework for listeners of Power Hour today. Read Andy's story. Subscribe to ACC's The Atlantic and Coastal Podcast um, to get Andy and Brennan Marks takes on basketball the rest of the way that we go this season. Andy, thanks so much for joining me. Great story and um, very, you know, just you know, you saw like the the idea of writing a profile of someone who's going to win the Super Bowl at age sixty eight. Very smart. Very proud of you. For well, seeing I didn't that know he was going to win. I didn't know he was going to win at the time, and I might not have even <laughs> wagered on him to win at the time. But uh, maybe it's better for the story that he did win. So hopefully, more people yes. will go out there and read it now. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining. Um, we appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was Andy Bitter, Virginia Tech Hokies beat writer. Uh, the Athletic does an incredible job. Be sure to follow his work, follow him on Twitter, and read that story. Uh, Power Hour will be back next Tuesday, as always. Like I mentioned, we will be delving into some basketball over the next two months, so keep an eye out for that. On the Andy Staples and Friends show later this week, Andy will be talking to Shane Beamer, so that could also be of interest for some of our Virginia Tech audience. Otherwise, I'm Nicole Auerbach, and I will talk to you next Tuesday. Mm-hmm.